And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully, you guys are having a terrific week. Uh, great show for you today. I was joined by my brother, Reed Cooley. Uh, always a great time talking to Reed, and I hadn't realized that he had not been on the podcast in almost a year. Um, crazy. We've both been busy, obviously, but uh, it was a great time catching up with Reed. Uh, we discussed the, uh, the the pros and cons of the, the current state of the liberty movement. Uh, we talked Trump and RFK and DeSantis and the primaries and whether or not there will be a, a long-lasting anti-war movement on the right and a bunch of other stuff. We, we, covered, we covered a lot of ground today. I think you guys will enjoy it. Uh, before I get to read, if you haven't already, guys, please follow us on Twitter at No Gimmicks Pod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to subscribe. If you are an Apple user, please take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating and a good review. I really appreciate that. And if you like the show and want to get involved, you can support us monthly over on Patreon, patreon.com slash the No Gimmicks Podcast. All right, without further ado, the great Reed Cooley. All right, guys, we're here with my brother, Reed Cooley. Reed, how you been, man? Dude, I'm great, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Dude, before we jump into everything, I, uh, you were, you were, we were catching up a little before we started recording, and um, we're obviously going to talk about how the entire world is burning down around us. But, uh, oh, of course. You, you, it, is, it is funny. As, the, as there's you know, coup attempts in Russia and the economy's you know, going off a cliff, you're just down there, down south, just in this accident, existential battle with a, a little kitten. So... It, cl- in. How, how's that going for you? Well, um, it's it, it's an ongoing crusade, but yeah. I think I might have neglected to mention that I'm actually fighting a war on two fronts. <laughs> so um, I have a, a, a about a one-year-old kitten. Uh, she's big. She's about 11 pounds. She's a tortoise shell cat, and she's she's obnoxiously nocturnal. Um, she she loves to get up at like 3 a.m. Uh, just tear things up. I bought like a $500 executive chair. Uh, for my office last week it was brand new it was leather um and the back of it looks like a piece of swiss cheese now i mean it just looks absolutely pitiful um the sheets on my bed are getting tore up uh and she just last night she decided to get up at three o'clock during the witching hour appropriately enough and just wreak havoc on my house she decided nope uh screw reed he's not going to get any sleep um i will show him and uh, so that was uh that was interesting. But the other front that I'm fighting, actually, I do have a very unique problem down in Mississippi. And that's the fact that it's been over 100 degrees for several days. And last week, we actually had such bad weather that like a bunch of trees got knocked down in my neighborhood. Um, things, things were just crazy. Last week, it was just constant rain. It just it didn't stop. Like I was on Amazon Googling gopher wood. Like, but thinking about like, do I need to build an ark? Like, has God finally gotten pissed off <laughs> enough? You know, <laughs> with, with all this pride stuff that he, he's ready to go Old Testament again, right? Uh, so, like, I was I was googling go for there there for a bit, trying to figure out, you know, how do you convert you know feet to cubits, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but no, seriously, today it's like 102 and it's obnoxiously humid. Uh, last night it was like 87 degrees. So on some days, you know, because I work at home. 
I like to be able to sit on my front porch just to enjoy some whiskey, maybe a cigar or some pop tobacco uh, while I'm working. That has not been the case for about the last two weeks. It's been very much, you know, stay your ass inside uh, kind of weather. Uh, so, yeah, fighting a war on two fronts, but uh, within the, the greater picture, uh, you know, compared to what's happening elsewhere in the world, such as, you know, World War III, uh, a little bit of heat uh, and a very noisy kitten uh, is not very much of a problem at all. Yeah, you're right. You're right. World War III really does put things into perspective. You got to... <laughs> you got to hand it to World War Three, you know. <laughs> well, right that's now, the one silver lining, other than the fact that you know the military-industrial complex gets obscenely wealthy. Right, right. Yeah, I, uh, my daughter's sleeping through the night now, so we're not dealing with a screaming baby in the middle of the night, but we are dealing with uh, Canadian wildfire smoke again. So it looks like it's foggy outside, or or cloudy or something, which is not true. There's actually a clear blue sky right now, but it looks like we're uh, we're in like the worst fog you've ever seen. Um, I mean, you can set your watch by probably by tomorrow night. Every, all the the libs on the East Coast are going to get it, so they'll start tweeting about it again. So just prepare yourselves. I, they, obviously, they don't care when when the the Midwest is is covered in smoke, but you know it's it's heading towards New York City. So we're going to have the insufferable coastal elites talking about the smoke uh, any any minute now. So that that'll. So be you're living in a Stephen King story. The yes. mist right now, basically. Yes. And yes. I'm living in Dune. Is that, is that kind of what's happening? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So, man, the first thing I want to talk about today, I kind of want to check in on, I don't want to say, like, the state of the liber- liberty movement, because I'm not going to talk about, like, the everyday on-the-ground stuff, which is super important, and there's a lot of great people doing awesome work. Um, but just, like, the uh, impact the liberty movement is having on the culture and, and current events, politics right now. And I want to start on the positive, and then I'm going to get to something depressing <laughs> afterwards. Okay. But but um, a, a couple developments in the last week or so that 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 do leave me slightly optimistic that our side is is making some sort of an impact. Um, Larry Fink of BlackRock, uh, one of the great villains of our time, in my opinion, uh, he, he says he's running right. away from um, all of the ESG language. Because um, he's real tired of the bad press and everything, he he blamed Ron yeah. DeSantis for for a lot of this. Um, you know, ma- mainstream Republicans, like normal Republicans, like DeSantis and and people like that, have been highlighting this stuff. Um, which honestly, I, I I thought it would take longer for the GOP to pick up on it, but obviously that that's a that's a positive development. Um, I, I doubt BlackRock is going to back off of anything, but you know. They're scared, and that that is a positive. And we're also seeing way more pushback to the insane Pride Month nonsense this year than we ever have before. You have NBC News running cover for pedophiles saying, you know, right, right. They, they don't they don't mean they're coming for your children. That's just how LGBTQ people talk, which is ridiculous. Oh, of course. they don't mean what they say. You know, yeah. what they're walking through the street screaming at. The top yeah, yeah, of their lungs in the middle yeah. of their so-called pride parades. They don't actually mean. Yeah, that. naked. By the way, they're screaming it naked, of course. But like you know, you see that. I saw that headline from NBC last night. It's like, well, if you're explaining, you're losing, right? And people are finally tired of it. You see, like the you know yep. Bud, Bud Light sales are down forty percent. You see Muslims up in Dearborn, Michigan, shutting down city council meetings. Christian groups all over the all over the place as well. So it's like there are these brief, and I'm going to get into the negative stuff in a minute, but like. <laughs> there is like at least on the the sexual degeneracy front and the ESG front like these are brief moments of sanity in an insane world. Yeah, so just based on previous discussions and, and interviews that you and I have done, you I think you might know by now that I try to maintain a cautious sort of optimism 
Right. Uh, but that, that cautious optimism has been dwindling, and I'm happy to explain more or less why. Whenever it comes to the BlackRock uh, business, it's just it's hilarious to me that that Larry Fink and other executives across other similar companies like State Street and so on and so forth, they they're so open about their intentions to shove a political agenda basically through the ranks of their companies, and they want to be public about it. They want to celebrate it, and they want to incentivize or coerce other companies, smaller companies, to follow their lead. It's a it's an open overtly political issue, right? ESG. But they complain whenever it suddenly becomes politicized. I don't understand. Like you guys, you're you're the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world. You're just proudly proclaiming this desire to put this political agenda out there to basically use the corporate world to circumvent the Bill of Rights. Correct? And now and they're complaining because they're getting pushback. They're complaining because it's become a right versus left or even a Republican versus Democrat sort of issue. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, moving on to the second thing you said, just the insanity of Pride Month. And we could we could do like an entire podcast series about that. But it's, it's becoming such a saturated market, you know, alluding to the fact, you know, alluding to what you pointed out, which is just there's so much pushback against it at this point. But, you know, there are a couple of things worth highlighting here. So I see a lot of pushback from ordinary moms and pops, and you know, like you know, suburban white moms, for example. They're generally speaking, they're getting more and more tired of this stuff because they, they're, they're not, some of them are, but a lot of them are not comfortable sending their children to a school, a public school, a taxpayer funded school, where they're going to be indoctrinated with gender ideology and given and uh, given different articles of clothing designed to reshape their body or put on hormone replacement therapy, or they're going to have, you know, pronouns. Uh, they're going to be able to pick different pronouns and their biological pronouns at school. Like, you know, parents, working parents are pretty nervous and apprehensive about that. So I, that's very much a silver lining. And, and what I've always tried to persuade libertarians to do is to use this social trend, use this, this very, a real um, sort of, you know, cultural contagion that we see here to to uh, muster up resentment against public school. Like this is a great time for us to make the case for abolishing public education. It's so easy to link yeah. it to, to, to link it to what's happening in public schools, for example. But the, the, the flip side of that is what I'm also seeing is a lot of people who, for example, might have supported same sex marriage 10, 15 years ago on either libertarian or semi-libertarian grounds are now coming to the conclusion that allowing gay people to get married, for example, was a mistake, right? That it was sort of a, it was a first, it was like a slippery slope, right? Um, I think that's a dangerous line of thinking. My, my libertarian instincts kick in as soon as I hear that kind of rhetoric. And I think, okay, I don't believe in taking away liberties from one person based on what we think a completely different person, an unrelated person might do. So I think it's taking things too far uh, to say that, for example, the, the legalization of same-sex marriage, even through Obergefell versus Hodges, and we can we can debate and discuss the merits of of bringing about same-sex marriage through the federal court system, the Supreme Court, all we want. It's a very different issue, but I think it's a mistake to say that we should go back to um, to codified heterosexual marriage only because of, I, I think that's an overcorrection. I, I don't accept this idea that 
that that the the uh, implementation of same-sex marriage with, for example, Overkill versus Hodges, or the states that did it individually before that court ruling, um, is somehow like like a slippery slope to where we got now. I just don't I don't see that. I simply don't see that. Um, so you know, I, I I advise people on the political right not to engage um, not to engage the fanaticism of some of the neo reactionaries. Um, who are saying that all this began with same-sex marriage or the repeal of sodomy laws. This, this is why, ultimately, I consider myself a right-wing libertarian. I am right-wing, but I'm also a libertarian, lowercase l. Um, under your third point there, you talked a little bit about uh, like the liberty movement's impact on all of this. Uh, probably the, the, the aspect of this conversation that I'm going to be most pessimistic about is the idea that the liberty movement has had an impact at all. Um, whenever it comes to fighting ESG, for example, um, or SEL, I just, uh, it's hard for me to see how libertarians uh, have been the one leading the charge on that. Uh, it's hard for me to see how, how the liberty, liberty movement has generated very much value, other than, for example, uh, Clint Russell. Uh, he's been very good uh, at talking about it. Uh, Tim Cast, if we could, you know, Tim Poole, if we could consider him somewhat tangential to the liberty movement. Maybe there's a case that, that, that Tim Pool uh, was, was a person sort of around the liberty movement who was moving the pendulum uh, um, against SEL, ESG, so on and so forth, just general communist influence uh, in corporate America. But I really think that this is something that originated from elements of the political right unrelated to libertarianism. I don't, I don't really see how, I don't see an argument and I can be persuaded of it theoretically but I just don't see an argument that the libertarians are the ones who who are, are responsible somehow, even partially, for for generating this sort of outrage uh, against uh, or distrust uh, of you know ESG, for example. I, I think that's something that's manifested independently. I would give James Lindsay um, a lot of credit. Um, I think he's been absolutely phenomenal on breaking it down. I'm not sure if you ever listened to his podcast, New Discourses. No, uh, but I never he's have. been. Okay, well, his, his podcast is very good. It's not a podcast like this where two people can talk back and forth. It's more or less just James giving lectures um, on what each of these are, how it can be traced back to Maoism, for example, or how it's influencing the public education system in ways that people don't understand. He's very good at, at discussing this sort of phylogenically, right? Talking about talking about these different trends that have occurred in the culture or in corporate America as though they exist in a greater sort of Marxist family tree of different ideologies and different agendas that have appeared um, throughout time, right? Yeah. Uh, so I would say James Lindsay has done a phenomenal job. Uh, the, the sort of anti-communist, right? Which uh, there aren't a lot of people who openly identify as anti-communist first and foremost, but you find elements of anti-communism within the America First conservatives, within elements of the, the new right, that this is other kind of movement that, that's coming along. Uh, you get bits of anti-communism within libertarianism. I suppose that's probably where I fall. Uh, but I think this, I think, you know, the resentment towards, you know, gender ideology in public schools uh, and ESG, I think this is something that libertarians have, have, have had very little to do with. In fact, I remember um, in, in two previous, you know, jobs I've had where I was responsible for overseeing marketing and, and, communi and communications for two very large libertarian orgs, um, I can remember back in those days uh, having to navigate um, around the fact that there were a lot of libertarians 
who were making the case that ESG is okay because whatever a corporation wants to do, they have the liberty to do it. Right. That's, right, that, was, right. that was the justification. They, they used to call themselves libertarian. Um, you know, so I, I, I think that more than anything, the liberty movement has really been a menace uh, here, or, or they've been just a, a net zero, neither net positive nor net negative. I really just don't have good feelings about the kind of shape that the liberty movement is in, but I'm really curious to hear why you don't have good feelings about why the liberty movement uh, is where it is. Yeah, well, yeah, that is that is totally valid, 100. percent And just uh, just to reiterate, reiterate one thing you said, um, I don't think anybody's been better on the ESG stuff than Clint Clint Russell. He, you know, he because he got into the whole yeah, he's good content creation game very recently. <laughs> I think in 2020, he shut down his business and moved across the country and start started a podcast. Um, but if if anybody has has missed his stuff, if you want to really learn the ins and outs of, of this whole ESG movement, check out his show. I mean, he he's really covered it extensively. So definitely, def- if you haven't already, check him out. Um, I I do think one one positive is that I do feel like libertarians have. I mean, some of them like the the you know whatever the Beltway libertarians are. They just are who they are. We don't need it. Whatever. They're not worth right. they're not worth any time on the on the show. Whatever. Right, but um, right. like. It was like the whole libertarian brand was this like worship of corporations. Corporations can do whatever right. they want, and then also like just defending the worst sexual deviancy out there. You know, as just like you know, love is love. You know, live and let live. And it's just like that made libertarianism a joke for a long time, especially as the culture just decayed. You know, like that. It just people just got off board with that. You know, the live and let live thing, which is like. I think it's good that, like, the faces of libertarianism aren't these, like, clowns anymore who are just like, I don't know, you know, if a corporation wants to chop your head off, you got to let them because they can do whatever you want, you know, and turn your kids well, trans McDonald's and everything. Well, the death trains. If we're going to be good libertarians, <laughs> yeah. we got to get on board and yeah. get taken to Auschwitz. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's definitely, did, yeah. It, is, it is a positive move that, like, those people aren't respected in the liberty movement anymore, at least most of them aren't. Yeah, uh... I would, I think that's fair, but we're talking about very inside baseball sort of politics happening within the libertarian movement, right. which, by the way, no real person actually gives a damn about. No, 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 um, no. Like, like no, no everyday, like, working mom or pop, you know, angry um, at inflation or angry that, that their kids are being indoctrinated with gender ideology care anything about whether Beltway libertarians or Ron Paul libertarians are the faces of the libertarian movement. Usually people don't know what the hell libertarianism is. Like even now, after all the the work of the Mises Caucus, and I love those guys, even now after all the great work of the Mises Caucus and taking over the Libertarian Party, for example, like the first thing that comes to many Americans' minds when they hear libertarianism is Gary Johnson. Yeah. Uh, Gary Johnson saying, what is Aleppo? Uh, Or they mistake it for the word librarian. Like they don't know what you're talking about, right? It's actually pretty frequently that I have to explain to members of my own family, people I'm fairly close with, what a libertarian is. And I've been on TV, I've been on podcasts, I've been in dozens of newspapers talking about this. I would think my family would have seen that by now, but there are a lot of members of my family who, despite the fact that they generally pay attention to what I do, they don't know what it is I really do or what it is that that I believe in, right? Right. Uh, So, you know, it's something that I tried to fix um, I really set out and, and worked just an ungodly amount of hours 
um, at two different jobs with two different organizations trying to turn that around, I don't see it happening. Uh, and I don't even think that the effort is worth the time. You know, for, for common sense people like you, um, like, you know, right wing or at least right of center libertarians, my advice strategically is hang on to your libertarian beliefs, but engage conservatism. Yeah. Like, I mean, engage where people actually are. I mean, they're not coming to libertarianism, and that's not going to change anytime soon. And here's something that really keeps me up at night about the state that the liberty movement is in, and that is the fact that – actually, let's, let's imagine this in the form of a hypothetical scenario, which could become a real scenario, by the way. Uh, the scenario is this. Imagine if a regime, a, a completely totalitarian regime swept total control of the federal government uh, in, a, in a surprisingly short amount of time, and they had the ability to single-handedly pick all discourse happening on the internet, right? All like, the, you know, they could shut down free speech with a seemingly a snap of their fingers, uh, and they could, they could completely control all discourse on the web, right? Libertarianism would die because there's no real grassroots backbone to this movement like think about it if you shut down overnight maybe like five podcasts and five twitter accounts okay like and i don't even have to tell you which ones they are yeah yeah, yeah but yep. if you shut down like five pod you'd have to just shut down like five podcasts and five twitter accounts and libertarianism is gone you've practically wiped it out like thanos with a snap of your fingers yeah because th there's no substance to it any like it doesn't live anywhere else but the web but as unfortunate as it is to say, on YouTube and on Twitter, I mean that's it. Libertarianism doesn't live anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, it's yeah. it, it is a 100% online movement, which is why years ago when I heard, for example, Jeff Deist over at the Mises Institute talking about stop being chronically online, that resonated with me because I knew exactly what he was talking about. Yeah, he was talking about the fact that liberty, the ideas of liberty, even separate from libertarianism they're they're online they're they're on a territory where where they could theoretically be shut down if a soviet style regime took control of the u.s and we're getting dangerously close to that by the way we don't even have to go down the rabbit hole of explaining how libertarianism's gone and what kind of resistance do you have to to that to that hypothetical regime well it lives in conservatism it, i mean it lives there it, it's not it's not with the cato institute or with Reason Magazine, or as unfortunate as it is to say, the Libertarian Party, or any other libertarian, overtly libertarian organization, it's with the conservatives. It's with ordinary people. That's where your resistance, that's where your potential rebellion against uh, such a regime uh, would hypothetically be. So I don't have very positive feelings about it, to be honest, but I can be persuaded to feel more optimistically. Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to that's not going to happen here, brother, <laughs> because you're you're absolutely right about that. And I'm actually just going to piggyback off what you just said and bring it down <laughs> even more because oh, no. <laughs> I because uh, you're absolutely right. And, and I'll even go a step further. And you and I have talked about this for years that, uh, you know, I, I do believe in the 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 Ron Paul strategy. And I believe that we need liberty warriors in the Republican Party and that, you know, uh, you know, bringing the right ideas to Republicans, to conservatism is 
is is going to be a huge part of whatever we accomplish, if we accomplish anything, right? Like, I think it's impossible to get where we want to go without that, without that happening. And we are just moving so far away from the Ron Paul moment. Um, it's just a completely different landscape now. And it just feels to me like the Democrats have Republicans right where they want them, unfortunately. And we've yeah. seen some of this already, but I think we're going to see a lot more. The Democrats, I think, are going to use Trump to dramatically push the GOP even further to the left. Um, and you're just, you know, the kind of campaign Trump is running right now, if you even want to call it that. Like, he doesn't believe in anything. Obviously, he, nobody would ever accuse Donald Trump of being a man of principle. But just the fact that he can be tricked into doing or saying just about anything, I think is really going to hurt us. And, you know, we've already seen him attack uh, DeSantis and, and other Republicans from the left on just about everything. You know, like he, he's attacking any Republican who wants to reform entitlements, right, to try to save what's left of a crumbling economy. I mean, that's not great. <laughs> you know, he's proudly saying he refuses to stop the economy from heading off a cliff. You know, he attacked DeSantis and others on the culture stuff, you know, siding with Disney because he hates DeSantis, you know, so they can just get him to side with any left-wing cause because he doesn't like DeSantis or whatever, you know. I, I mean, and I think it's going to—you're going to see some real funky stuff out of the Trump campaign, too. Like, DeSantis just spent yep. the last few days on the southern border rolling out this, like— plan to stop illegal immigration, all that. I bet Trump will attack DeSantis from the left on immigration, even though it's his one thing, right? Like, build the wall. That's that's Trump's whole brand. And I just think the, the press and the Democrats will be able to use Trump to push the Republicans to the left and really solidify that uniparty, you know, what, what we like to call the uniparty. Um, and, man, it's just if every Republican with any common sense in their heads is beaten into silence— Oh, it's just not great, man. It's just not great. And I'm not saying every libertarian needs to be a Republican like I am. I, I get that. That's just the path I chose. You can choose a different path. Totally respect that. But it's like we do need Ron Pauls. Like, we do need people like that. Yeah. We need to influence the Republican Party because we just don't have, outside of the GOP, we just don't have the numbers, right? It's just that, I mean, this is electoral politics, right? It's a numbers game. So it's like, I, I really think we're starting to see it, and I think the Democrats are going to play Trump like a fiddle like they have the last five, six years. And I think they're going to yeah. use him to beat liberty out of, of the GOP. I think it's going to get real ugly. Well, uh, I, I would have never suspected five, six years ago that the Democrats would have ever wanted Donald Trump to be the GOP nominee. But I think that's the sort of unusual sort of upside down world circumstances that we've gotten into now. I think the Democrats want Trump to be the nominee for a couple of reasons. I think that uh, they feel like they can beat him again mm -hmm. uh, because he's so unpopular, uh, for example, with the demographic I alluded to a little while ago, like, you know, suburban moms, for example. Right. Um, he, he's just insanely unpopular. But that demographic, the Democrats know that. I think they're banking on him to be the nominee for that reason. But you bring up an interesting angle to that, which is that it's possible the Democrats want him to be the nominee because they can, as you put it, very aptly play him like a fiddle. They can they, they can sort of manipulate him and goad him into going in the direction they want to go because they know exactly how he's going to react to anything that they put out or to anything that Ron DeSanctimonious or whatever he calls him uh, does. Uh, so I think that you, you make an interesting point there, it, it, but it, it's just absurd to me, once again, that we went from a world where the Democrats were doing everything they could to make sure Trump wasn't the nominee um, 
to actually banking on him being the nominee. Like it's it's just, it's fascinating how politics can turn on its head, you know, in in the blink of an eye. Yeah, I mean they're just it's. I mean, Democrats are are pretty simple people, you know what I mean? And I do respect them because they're good at what they do. Um, They don't care. I mean, they don't care about anything, man. They're just like, you know, they hate Trump more than anybody, but they're like, well, he's the easiest candidate to beat. We can use him to push the GOP left. So let's give him all the free airtime and promote him and attack his opponents. And this is like, you know, you have like The View and and CNN and the New York Times like running cover for Trump and attacking other Republicans it's like man that is i mean they they really take the gloves off man when it's time to have an election don't they mm-hmm. i mean they do not care they don't care. i mean I, you know we conservatives are always accusing democrats of of hypocrisy you know look at how what what if it was what if the situation was reversed they're like we don't care like we don't yeah, we're like, we're yeah, crushing we're crushing working. you. We're beating you to death. Like why don't you get this conservatives, you know? And it's like they <laughs> they don't care man. They and they're just they're they right. they step in line like the you know I want to I want to bring this up in a second, but it's like I I that's why I you know it, it's encouraging seeing a guy like RFK Jr. running as a democrat because he's just like he says things that you haven't heard a democrat say for 50 years, you know what I mean? Like the other day, he's like, right. you know, guns aren't the problem. Everyone in Switzerland owns a gun. They don't shoot up schools. Like, maybe we should get all these kids off of Ritalin and all these, like, antidepressants and stuff. And you're like, Yeah, huh, I saw that. Huh. And he even said, he's like, well, the Supreme Court made it clear that I can't take guns, so no, I'm not taking anybody's guns. And it's like, oh, wow, weird. Like, some like a Democrat who, like, respects the law? Like, that's that hasn't happened in my uh, lifetime. I, 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 I don't know. I I I'm not as optimistic about RFK Jr. Either, no, 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 no. Um, as, as maybe you are. Like, I, there's no way RFK Jr. is getting my vote. I'm sorry. No, like, no, 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 no. He throws to the right or to libertarians. Like, that's not happening. And we got to remember, like, he's a politician. And he comes from probably the most well-known dynasty of politicians in American history. Okay? I mean, the Kennedys are, they've been called American royalty. How many times? Or at least compared to American royalty. He comes from a family that knows what they're doing when it when it comes to getting elected or at least getting close to power um, or at least telling people what they want to hear. So I don't think RF, I don't know if RFK is a bad person, uh, RFK Jr., I mean, but I'm not getting he's not getting my vote. I mean, he supports critical race theory, teaching critical race theory in high school. Oh, no, of course. Um, no, he's no, he'd be yeah, an absolute I mean, he supports monster. Increasing environmental regulations oh, yeah, he supports yeah. universal health care. I mean. No, what, um, all I was gonna say about RFK is that the best case scenario with him running, and I don't think this is gonna work because the Democrats are just so collectivist in nature at this point, where they just, if their television tells them to line up behind Joe Biden, they're just simply going to line up behind Joe Biden. I think, but uh, like right. best best case scenario with RFK is that he gives Democrats who may be on the fence on some of these things permission to oppose the regime. Right. And that, dude, and that like that is important because half of what Ron Paul accomplished in 2008 is he just gave Republicans permission to oppose the regime. Like a lot of Republicans needed somebody to get on TV and give them permission to be anti-war. I wish people didn't need right, that. Right. You know what I mean? Obviously, I wish people thought as individuals and made their uh, made their own decisions. But like, you know, sometimes you need Republicans needed, you know, permission to not lie about the fact that they smoke weed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you just need, like, sometimes you need 
permission as a voter who like doesn't understand liberty, doesn't understand these things. Sometimes you need like a candidate to give you permission. Be like, yeah, you know, I've always opposed Joe Biden in this. Like, I've always thought that like, you know, you shouldn't mandate the COVID vaccine or lock the economy down or like, yeah, I always thought it was pretty crazy that, you know, like Joe Biden wants to go door to door and steal everyone's guns at gunpoint, you know. So it's like best case scenario, RFK can like may wake up a few Democrats, maybe give a few Democrats permission to like think for themselves, but maybe oppose the vaccines or something or criticize the vaccines. Right. Um, maybe, you know, criticize the CIA and the FBI. You know, RFK might I think what you're saying is he might expand the Overton window right. uh, for the left and maybe the same way that Ron Paul and Donald Trump have done for the right. I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen. I'm just saying best case scenario that could happen. But I like okay, gotcha. I, I don't think that like Democrats are anywhere near as open to critical thinking as Republicans were in 2008. I just don't think I mean, I mean, there's still Democrats wearing masks in their cars, man. I mean, it's like right. it's it's real yeah. weird out there. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. like, be, you no, know, I mean, maybe like maybe true. he can, you know, like I'm just trying to look on the positive side. Like, there is a chance maybe he can impact the Democratic Party in some minor way. Yeah, just, you know, a general observation that I've had since I was a little kid paying attention to politics is that Republicans are more willing uh, to criticize other Republicans than Democrats are willing to criticize other Democrats. Like, the Democrats have a better tendency to remain unified um, in whatever it is they're doing, whatever their agenda is um, of the day. Whereas Republicans, I mean, they're more fractious. Uh, I remember like the, the 2012 and 2016 Republican debates, just feeling like there was so much more ideological diversity yeah. um, among the candidates who were running. Like 2016, for example, uh, there was Donald Trump, Jeb Bush, you know, Marco Rubio, you know, Ted Cruz, and Rand Paul, all right. very different flavors um, of a of, you know a political candidate, right? I and mean, they were very different political animals from each other. Um, I mean, Trump's brand is very different than Jeb Bush, who's very different uh, than Ted Cruz, who's very different than Rand Paul. And you're just paying attention to to the differences between Democratic candidates in the last election cycle, 2020. I think Andrew Yang was the most unique, yeah. but the rest of them, uh, the rest of them were just facsimiles of each other. Yeah, uh, it was like 35 faces. psychopaths and then Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard, <laughs> who like never yeah, had well, any uh, chance. Yeah. You know, we're polling at 1% and, you know, never you know, had a chance to really do anything. I should have given, uh, Tol I should have actually mentioned Tulsi Gabbard there. Uh, she just slipped. But Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard, I mean, they were the only two that were really unique, right? Whereas uh, I just feel like looking at, at the last several election cycles, including the current one, at the Republican field, there is more ideological diversity. That, that tends to be on the debate stage, right? That you know that tends to be there. Like, look now, you have uh, Donald Trump, obviously, Ron DeSantis, who's very noticeably different in terms of character, uh, in terms of the issues that he's been able to champion in a very unique way. And then, of course, there's Nikki Haley, who is a Democrat, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, there's there's not a conservative bone in her body. I mean, her whole her whole entire campaign shtick is that you know the first female president can be a republican <laughs> yeah. well great yeah that sounds wonderful you know and she talks about the fact that her dad wore a turban you know so um <laughs> like, who's so, the audience who's the well, audience for this the first minority woman can be a republican oh my god you know um and then but you also get a few other a few other odd candidates here and there like tim scott um he might be a little bit more of a kind of a, a mainstream conservative i don't see a whole lot that's really different about him he, he's not really uh, an iconoclast, 
as far as I can tell, in any sort of way. But but even now, the Republican field is exhibiting a lot more sort of ideological diversity than than the people who are you know declaring or going to potentially declare uh, for the Democrats. Obviously, and this tends to be a pretty consistent rule. You know, Republicans are always more willing to attack other Republicans uh, than Democrats are. Is there any way in the next couple years, let's just say until the 2024 election, what what are the ways, if any, that people with our ideological bent can influence people on the left? Because I, I don't know if there's anything. Like, no. I don't know if there's anything I mean, they, I, they would— Hang it up. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Hang it I know. up, man. Like, yeah, I don't, uh, think, I don't yeah. think so, right? No, no. I Whenever I was first getting experience in politics, I— I sort of I had this idea that we could engage in some sort of dialogue with the left on maybe a criminal justice reform mm-hmm. or something. But like there is no point in trying to coordinate or ally yourself with people who think that you're the most evil, despicable subhuman thing on the planet. I mean, you and I, uh, you know, conservative white males, I'm a conservative southern white male, uh, which is just a heterosexual I mean, and Christian, oh my gosh, like own we are, cat, we're, we're, we're the know, devil I mean, to these people. <laughs> I come again? No, I just said you own a cat, you know, that's another check against you, you know, yeah, man. No, yeah, I, uh, I mean, it's, it's like, you no, know, these people think that we are absolutely despicable. They want us dead. No, I mean, if there are good leftists, um, and there are, but the good leftists out there, people with whom we can work, they're going to come our way eventually. There's no point in conducting any kind of extra outreach in my opinion, to anybody on the left, even the more reasonable Democrats, um, I'll give you some examples. So I like a lot of things that Jimmy Dore and Tim Poole have to say, right? Mm-hmm. But there's not a lot of inherent value in work in, in just going out of the way to work with Democrats of those kind of characteristics because Jimmy Dore and Tim Poole, they're the exceptions, not the rule. I mean, yeah. they're, they're practically an endangered species. And look at the audiences that they have started to build over the last four to five years, both of them. They've had to shift dramatically from a left-wing audience to a right-wing audience, yeah. both of their shows, the Jimmy Dore Show and Tim Kest. Yep. You know, so the fact that they're gaining so much popularity um, and that their shows are growing and they have a, a large social media presence is because they're appealing to conservatives now. Right? I was just going to I was just going to ask you that. Ideas, but I, they're, they're really conservative commentators. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, because I don't listen to either one of those shows. Like, do does Jimmy Dore still have a left-wing audience at all? I mean, I... Uh, no, I don't I don't think so. So yeah. this is something I've put a lot of thought into. Um, it really looks like Jimmy Dore is a... He's probably like a 90s or 2000s kind of Democrat, you know, a little bit more of an old-school liberal uh, than the faction that's taken over the Democratic Party now. But no, I think that whenever it comes to his audience, I get the feeling that they're maybe moderates, working class people, conservatives. And then, of course, he has libertarians uh, who really love him. And I think I think it's fine, like going on Jimmy Dore's show, uh, having him speak at events. I mean, these things are great, but they're just there aren't very many Jimmy Dores. It's not like there's an ocean of Jimmy Dores and Tim Pools out there that just has yet to be explored. That's just not a realistic way of looking at it. You know, so like I said, the good ones like Jimmy Dore and Tim Pool, they're going to come our way. And that's exactly what they already done yeah no that's right and i think the the craziest thing that the democrats did that the left did um is they they figured out a way man to use donald trump and the hatred of donald trump especially among women and independents to align 
Democratic voters with the FBI. I mean, it's just like yeah. it's a party of the FBI. I mean, they've convinced half the country that the FBI, this wicked organization that exists to oppress Americans, is like the savior of the re- republic or something. I don't know, man, but but have they? Because first off, I, I, this is this is making me curious. I would like to see some polling data on maybe how Americans feel about the FBI and, if possible, break it down by Democrat, Independent, Republican. Uh, but I don't actually know that half the country believes that the FBI is a virtuous and patriotic organization. I think that the Democrats and the Democratic voters who are, let's say, implicitly supporting the FBI understand that the FBI is evil, but they're willing to weaponize it against Donald Trump because they think Donald Trump is even worse. Right. Um, so like, I think even like everyday Democrat voters you know, if, if an FBI agent showed up to their doorstep tomorrow, I don't think they would say, oh, my God, thank you for coming to my house. I think they would be deeply skeptical and nervous and distrustful, as they should be. Yeah. But it just so happens that the that the Gestapo is going after their enemy now. So I think you know, they understand that it's evil. It's wicked, as you put it. But they're willing to 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 you know let that pit bull uh, go after Donald Trump. Um, they they couldn't care less. So I don't I don't I don't really buy into the idea that half the country loves the FBI now. Gotcha. Well, that's good. I mean, <laughs> I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope you're right. Yeah, and it is. They they have, and that's why I think they're really going to use Trump on the policy front to uh to swing the GOP to the left because they've already, like you said, you know, Democrats are willing to line up behind the FBI against their their perceived political opponents and Donald Trump. Um, but it's like. Man, they really have used. They've capitalized on all of Donald Trump's flaws to make sure that the Ron Paul era is over in the GOP. You know what I mean? And they've done it effectively, and they've used Trump to beat it out of the GOP. And it's like, you know, and and I keep saying this, man, because like I don't care. Like I'm an anarchist, like you. You know, like I don't ca- like I don't care about any of these people, these politicians. Like I'm not loyal to a politician or a political party or anybody. I'm loyal to my family, to God, my friends. That's it. But it's like. I, I talk to Trump supporters all the time because there's a lot of Trump supporters who listen to the podcast and they're like, all the demonization of Trump, it's not his fault. It's all made up. It's the deep state. They framed him. It's this and that and the other. It's not fair. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay. Well, one, like, you could say it's unfair and that's true. And you can say there's two entirely separate forms of justice in America. That's also true. I mean, you can't say Trump did, never does any. I mean, come on. Like, he's on tape. Like, we've, we've heard the tape. <laughs> Of him, like he's like, you know, I could have declassified these documents, but I didn't. <laughs> They're still classified. Look at them. And then like the staffers, like I don't know if I should be looking at this man. He's like, no, no, no. Look at it. Look at it's it. Okay, look at it's it. It's okay. <laughs> and I'm like, it's like consistent. They look at like putting it in front of their eyes. Like look at it. Look at yes. it. Staffers covering his eyes. No, I don't want to see no. it. No, <laughs> Mr. President, please. I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> just, just look at the document. Look at it here. Just every lawyer in the country is listening to that. Like, dude, stop. Stop. Like, what are you doing? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But it's um, like, but let's say that didn't happen. Let's say Trump literally did nothing wrong his entire life, which is ridiculous. But let's just, let's just, let's let's say right. we live in this fantasy world, right? They still beat him. Like, it, like, even if everything the Democrats said about your boy Trump is false, 75% of the country thinks it's true. So it's like, even if it is all propaganda— yeah. It worked. So sometimes you got to just take the loss. 
You know, you gotta just take the L and move on, man. Like if it's like a freaking you're in a title fight if you're a heavyweight boxer in a prize fight, and you know a dude knocks you out with an illegal headbutt and the ref misses it and says you got knocked out with a punch. Well, you're still unconscious on the ground. Okay, you still lost. You're not bringing home that 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 win bonus. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, man, it sucks. It sucks that the press lies. It sucks that Joe Biden has Alzheimer's. It sucks that a lot of things suck in this world. I wish a lot of things in this world were different than the way they are. <laughs> okay, right. but right. it's like, whether by hook or by crook, they took down Trump. They, they, there's a good chance he ends up in prison, man. Especially if he keeps yep. going on TV and talking about the case. For goodness sakes, please shut your yeah, mouth. Yeah, but it's like. This is, this is a darker situation, you know, that Trump has been in in the past. Um, here's where I might differ uh, from, from your estimation a little bit, and that's that there's an anti-war movement in the Republican Party in the form of the, you know, the America First mantra that I don't think is going to go anywhere. I think that uh, Ron Paul and Donald Trump slowly introduced, they will rather reintroduced, uh, the sort of old right flavor of, of anti-war uh, politics to the Republican Party. And so when we see Americans who are criticizing Joe Biden for sending um, another $6.2 billion to Ukraine accidentally, right, it's Republicans who are up in arms about this, and Republican voters, no less. I just don't see that going away. I think the America First um, way of thinking about foreign policy, I think it's going to stick with us for another generation. I could disappear after that point. I would hope not. But I, I think so. that I think that that is going to stay with us. You know, it was a part of the Republican platform. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but America First didn't originate with Trump. Um, America First was a popular slogan used uh, by Republicans who are now considered to be what's called the old right, capital O, capital R. So the 30s and 40s and even into the 50s, yep. right? America First was a popular slogan. You know, the Trump campaign and what I consider to be a stroke of genius simply reintroduced it, you know, to the American political lexicon. Um, so I think that that's going to stick came out of the while, It but... came out of the Wilsonian foreign policy, yep. Right, exactly, exactly. So, um, but th there's a key question here, and that is that if, if Donald Trump can really be duped, as you put it, into bringing the Republican Party further to the left or to the center even, then is Ron DeSantis the figure who brings the Republican Party further to the right? Is Ron DeSantis suddenly the counter figure here trying to keep the Republican Party grounded in, in conservatism? Yeah, I hope so. You know, I um, I hope so. I mean, I think, yeah, obviously I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, but I, I agree with Ron DeSantis on a lot of stuff, too. I mean, I think he's done right. a pretty great job down in Florida. Um and there's really no better audition to be president than, you know, being the governor of like the third biggest state in the country. But um, yeah, and, and uh, I think libertarians should give DeSantis a lot more credit when it comes to him using qualification to fight the covid vaccine mandates. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. he used the premise of states rights to to counteract Joe Biden's vaccine mandates that, of course, he was pushing through OSHA. I mean, that's huge. Dude, uh, Reed, let me Bishop, let me tell you this. This is like two years ago. Back when um, DeSantis was really starting to make some waves, like on the conservative right, you know, people were really starting to talk about him. And uh, I remember this like two years ago. I had Clint Russell and Jim Garrity on the show the same week. And both wow. of them, both of those gentlemen, couldn't be further apart, right? I, like, as they're both on the political right. 
but that's where the similarities end. <laughs> you know what I mean? And both of those right. guys, like a center-right Republican and an anarchist, were both singing DeSantis's praises for whatever it was. I don't remember what we were talking about, but it was whatever happened in Florida that month. They were both had nothing but positive things to say about Ron DeSantis. And I was thinking to myself after that week, I was like, huh. <laughs> if you're like if you're talking about how you need to build a large coalition to win a federal election, I mean if you have Clinton Jim on the same page, like right. that's a talk about a big tent, man. Like wow. You know, like that that's when I right. started right. really thinking like all right, okay, Ron DeSantis. Like, I see you. I'll I'll keep my eyes peeled, you know? Like, I'll see if there's anything there. Well, I think we can expand that even further. So I remember um, last year, Bill Maher was going on his show on HBO, uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, actually saying that he respects Ron DeSantis and that, <laughs> and that he, there might actually be something to it. You know, the idea that the vaccine is, is deadlier uh, you know, than the mainstream media has been telling us that we should be maybe more skeptical about all this. Um, and Bill Maher was criticizing, obviously, elements of leftist culture with which he disagrees as a fellow leftist. But even Bill Maher, I mean, who has made a career for decades out of mocking Republicans and calling them stupid and ridiculing Christianity. Mm -hmm. I mean, even he's saying that he respects Ron DeSantis and that DeSantis is, is looking more and more like a serious contender. So DeSantis and RFK Jr. have one thing in common that I could point to now, and maybe it's only one thing, which is that they're both pretty good at gaining the, you know, at least some respect from the other side. Like RFK Jr. is, it's getting more and more difficult to ignore just how, just how much moderates and conservatives are beginning to like him. I mean, they are, they're really beginning to warm up to the idea another Kennedy in the White House. Likewise, there are liberals um, of the Jimmy Dore, Tim Pool variety, and I guess of the Bill Maher variety, who are, you know, inclined at least to respect uh, the way that Ron DeSantis has governed his state. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think if you look at the way the press talks about a DeSantis or an RFK versus how they talk about Trump or, or, or any of the other candidates or any of the Democrats— I get the feeling that it is a universally agreed upon notion on the left and in the media that Trump is re no real threat. Not even to not. I mean, he he's not going to beat Biden. I mean, that's the bottom line. He can't beat Biden. There's just no way. I mean, he like he he lost all the swing states in 2020, and he's only gotten less popular in every single one of those states. So it's like it's just it's not going to happen. But it's like even if he were, I mean, he was president for four years, and essentially posed no threat to the deep state, no threat to the agenda of the Democratic Party. Not really. You know what I mean? Like he cut taxes a right. little bit. He did a few things on the margins, but he doesn't understand Congress. You know what I mean? He doesn't actually understand how how the system works. DeSantis and RFK are like if one of like RFK has a zero percent chance of it, they'd kill RFK before they let him be the Democrat right. nominee. I, right. I truly believe that. It's like not like would, they've ever killed a Kennedy before. Yeah. Yeah. I think he'd be the. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not just trying to be cute either, man. Like I, I legitimately think. No, I, I agree if, with you. I, if he I was if he was polling at 45 percent right now, I'd be like, bro, just hide. Just hire security. Yeah. Get somebody to test your food. Like, yikes, man. Do not go to Dallas, Texas. Yeah, do, <laughs> do not, not go to— Do not run around in convertibles. <laughs> avoid, avoid grassy knolls like the like the plague. Like, it, yeah, man. But, yeah. I uh, like, they both pose a threat. Like, if, if either one of—if DeSantis, DeSantis actually has a chance 
yeah, a slim chance, but a chance. But those guys would actually <laughs> upend the system. You know what I mean? That would that would yeah. they would disrupt all the people that are making a lot of money doing a lot of evil yeah, things. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they know that Trump, obviously Biden is a part of yeah. is a, is in on it. And then Trump is just too narcissistic, too stupid, too naive to to really be effective in office. We saw it for four years. So it's like that's why when you see them talk about DeSantis, it's like there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of anger and they really hate the guy because they know that DeSantis actually believes what he's saying and Trump doesn't. Well, um, all of that's accurate. I mean, as, as far as I can tell, you know, Donald Trump didn't seem to want to abolish the FBI until he was out of office. You know, that seems to be the point where he realized, okay, maybe it's time to do something about this deep state. Uh, it wasn't anytime he was in office. He, he never fired Fauci. Um, I think that Donald Trump might have been a bigger threat in many ways to the people who got elected uh, than he was to his own political enemies. And we're talking about uh, the most inflationary president in history, whenever he was uh, still in the White House, signed into law the two biggest spending packages in history. Uh, When when people go to the grocery store today and they see the fact that uh, their prices are almost three times what they were four years ago, they can thank Donald Trump for a lot of that. Donald Trump, he also supported red flag red flag laws, yeah. you know, as far as extreme risk protection orders that would allow the federal government to confiscate guns if a person is deemed by a relative or somebody else to be a threat to themselves or other people, right? Yep. So um, you were talking, you made a joke about Joe Biden going door to door, taking people's guns. And I thought that almost sounds like something Trump was ready to support. Thanks to Dan Crenshaw and Lindsey Graham right. back in about 2019. So yeah. um, like I said, I think Trump, and it was also Trump who pushed the vaccine. I mean, he was he was bragging about how quickly he was getting the vaccine out. He was encouraging people to take the vaccine, a vaccine that, you know, is a pretty it's pretty accepted among the mainstream now that it's just not what it was purported to be. So in in some ways, Donald Trump might have been a bigger threat uh, in the grand scheme of things to the very people who got him elected than to the people who were trying to destroy him after he got elected. One more thing. And I know we're way over time. I got to let you go. But one more thing before we wrap it up. And I, I hope and pray you're right that um, the anti-war movement on the right is here to stay, at least for a while. Right. The, the, it is terrifying, though. That ah, man, they can just they can get Trump to do anything. They can get Trump. They can trick Trump into supporting just about anything. And you saw when he was president, you know, he'd be right. um, he'd play golf with Rand Paul. And he'd be anti-war. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like it was, you know, when when Iran shot down that unmanned drone, I think it was in 2017 or 2018, he happened to be playing golf with Rand Paul that day, and the, he didn't yep. go to war with Iran. If he was playing golf with Lindsey Graham, would we have bombed Iran? We Probably. might have gone to war with Iran that day. I mean, it was like he, he'd say, because he has nothing. Like there's no, he's not standing on principle. He's not even standing on any kind of basic understanding of how the world works right. at all. He's just kind of shooting by the hip and it's like man he'd go from like no we're never going to war with iran that's crazy these neocons needed relax or then a week later he's bragging about bombing syria you know what i mean so it's like i just the fbi obviously they they or the caa rather made up out of whole cloth the um the the bs story about russia putting bounties on american soldiers in afghanistan and trump bought it and then he he decided not to leave afghanistan but it's like they can just manipulate the dude into doing just about anything, and I hope the, the the I hope there's a legitimate, real, organic anti-war movement on the right that people actually. I, I hope that's a principle that people hold dear moving forward, 
But man, you just look at a lot of, and I know Twitter is not real, and Twitter is not real life, and you can't judge all Trump voters based on the clowns that we see on, on Twitter. You know what I mean? But right. man, Trump will just flip flop on stuff, and his support, a lot of his supporters will just flip flop right with him. I mean, it's like this bizarre left wing cult of personality type deal. And it's like, I just don't know how real it is. I, I hope you're right, and I hope it is a, a, a long-lasting movement on the right. But, man, some, something in the back of my head's like, I don't know, dude. Trump could just, like, say we're going to war with Mexico, and then his supporters will clap like seals. Like, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know how, how real it is. Yeah, well, I think the America First uh, movement uh, will continue in the Republican Party, whether or not Trump does uh, get reelected or whether he is, at the very least, the nominee. Um, I think it'll be probably, it'll last for, probably about the same amount of time that the last America First movement lasted, which was a couple of decades. Uh, that's why I said earlier, yeah, um, I see the America First movement staying around for a generation. It could dissipate uh, before then, but I see it sticking around for another maybe 10, 20 years. Could be a little less, but uh, I think you know that that's the biggest breath of fresh air that we got with the Trump administration, even though, in my opinion, he doesn't even come close uh, to making the cut as an anti-war president. We're talking about a guy who, in 2019, single-handedly vetoed uh, a bill that was passed through both chambers of Congress that would have ended U.S. support uh, for the genocide in Yemen. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we, we had finally got it through the House and the Senate. It was yeah. bipartisan, and Trump vetoed it for whatever stupid reason. We're also talking about a president who could have uh, pardoned Ross Ulbricht single-handedly, yep. but the, the, the people surrounding him, his cabinet— they just, you know, they wouldn't let him do it. I mean, that that was his excuse. I, I, I got to talk with, with Lynn Ulbricht um, about two years ago about this. And she said that, uh, you know, the cause of trying to get Ross pardon during the Trump administration was really defined by the fact that people sitting in Trump's cabinet around him simply, and I quote, would not let him do it. Um, and I thought, what the hell? He's the president. Yeah. I mean, he's the president of the United States. And but Mike Pompeo is in his ear, presumably, telling him, oh, no, no, we don't want to pardon that Ross Ulbricht guy. It's utterly ridiculous. So, no, I mean, and I know I bridged there from foreign policy to Ross Ulbricht, but in my opinion, it's never a bad time to bring up Ross. But Absolutely. when it comes to foreign policy, he doesn't even come close. Trump does not even come close to, to making anti-war muster. Um. But at the same time, he, he did bring about, or his campaign brought about America first language you know, that was beneficial. And talking about him widening you know, the, the Overton window, you know, Trump made it okay to, to criticize John McCain. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like, I mean, he did. I'm, before yep. Donald Trump, and you can agree or disagree with Trump's way of putting it, but before Donald Trump said that John McCain isn't a war hero, I mean, John McCain was untouchable. You yeah. could not criticize him or his record on war because he was a respected, bipartisan gentleman and blah, blah, blah. And then Trump says that, and it's just like a completely new vista of thinking about, about American politics or political discourse was suddenly opened, and it became okay to criticize the McCains. And before you know it, it became a little bit more acceptable to criticize Lindsey Graham. And then the next domino was, okay, it became good to, to criticize Dan Crenshaw. In fact, it became a popular conservative talking point. Um, and then before you know it, Tucker Carlson is criticizing neocons on his show, you know, the primetime show on Fox News. So yeah. I think that, you know, Trump opened up the way for that rhetoric. But whenever it comes, whenever it came to him sticking by it, 
uh, there's very little evidence to say that he actually did. Yeah, just makes me nervous. You know, anytime something would happen when when Trump was president, um, you just don't know. You just don't know who's in the room with him. He's so influenced by whoever he's talking to at the time. It's it's tough, man. It's tough. You just you just never know. It's like I, I wonder what would have happened. You know, Trump. Trump. Obviously, he should. He and all Republicans should be campaigning on this line because it's you can't disprove it. Um, but it's like you never know. Like if Trump had won in twenty twenty, you just don't know what would have happened. Um, at the beginning of the Ukraine war, like who knows, man? Trump could have been great, being like, no, we're not gonna involve ourselves in a land war in Europe, or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? He could have been like, he could have been listening to whatever like degenerate Secretary of State he has at the time, and like sent boots on the ground or something. It's like, it's just so hard to know how Trump would respond to a lot of these things because it's just. It, it, like you said, the, the foreign policy has just been all over the place from, you know, constantly supporting the Saudis in, in the war in Yemen, which, thank God, appears to be over, by the way. I think we're we're on, what, yeah. a year and a couple months of, of this ceasefire, and none of us thought that it would last a month, you know? I think it was like, what, right, March right. March of March or April of last year was that first month. We're like, I ah, hope it lasts a month. Well, we're, we're 15, months, 15 months later, and, and people have stopped dying, yeah. thank God. But, um... But yeah, it's just it's so hard to tell what Trump would even do in a lot of these situations. I mean, keep campaigning on the whole like end the Ukraine war line. Obviously, great. I, it, 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 as many people talking about that as possible, you know, it's good good in my book. But it's just, yet, w- would he have governed like that? Uh, I just, I don't know. I mean, maybe depends if Rand Paul was on the golf course. If he wasn't, <laughs> yikes. You know, I mean, it's like, and that is just a rough way. It is a rough way to to run an administration, man. Yep. And it's it does make people nervous. I think that what you just talked about, you're you're far from the only person to feel the way about, generally speaking, the decisions that Donald Trump makes. Um, And I think that a lot of, you know, just a lot of everyday Americans who are not right or left, they really just do not want to have to put up with the constant drama that they came with the first, you know, Trump term. Uh, And let's face it, I mean, that was a very anxious time for the country. Much of that anxiety was being artificially generated by the corporate press with all sorts of ridiculous claims. But, I mean, it was it was a real nail biter. You know, those uh, those four years whenever Trump was in office because of precisely what you said, uh, even though he had some he, he had a couple of good things he, he did. It was it was kind of nervous to not know exactly where the man stood on things uh, beyond, you know, whatever seemed to benefit him at any given time. Right. Read, my brother. We're way over time, so I'll let you go. Uh, where can everybody uh, read your stuff, keep in touch, all that good stuff? Well, the best place to keep up with me and uh, everything that I'm writing and putting out there is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is my name, at Reed Cooley, R-E-E-D-C-O-O-L-E-Y. Everybody follow Reed. He's great. That's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. <laughs>